0: Good morning, Church. Our Bible reading comes from the book of John, chapter 11, verse 17 to 44. Verse 17. On his arrival, have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise up again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind men have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said mother the sister of the dead man. By this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Do I need to do anything to this? No. Good, me and technology don't go too well together. Why did not I bow my why don't we all bow our heads as I just pray a sentence of prayer for us? Thank you, Heavenly Father, so much for your word. And we pray, Lord, that what we don't know, please teach us. What we don't have, please give us. And most of all, Lord, what we are not, please make us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, as an ordained Anglican, I've learned something here, according to your PowerPoint, uh, that we're in the season of Epiphany. It's obviously very diff- different de- um, in the Southern... Hemisphere, and I thought Shrove Tuesday had ushered us into Lent, but but what do we know? Um, uh, this is uh, a fabulous uh, passage, so uh, important that Simon uh, dedicated two two Sundays to it, and it's a great privilege for me uh, to to come and and speak on this. Back in January 21, I was sitting in the John Radcliffe. Hospital, it's a big trauma hospital in Oxford, and I was in the critical, uh, the COVID critical care unit, saying good, uh, goodbye to uh, a dear friend of ours, Mike. Mike is probably our, our dearest local friend in the village. We'd known him for 30 years. He was godfather to our youngest son, Hugo, and he c- came to a clear faith in Jesus about 30 years, uh, sorry, about 28 years ago, uh, through an agnostics anonymous group. We, we ran in our chick, uh, in chicken, we ran in our kitchen back home and when I preached at his funeral just over a year ago, this was the passage I was preaching from, and I was naturally preaching to a gathering of michael 's local friends uh, and neighbors and It made me realize there 's nothing like preaching to just ordinary secular people in your own backyard there 's nothing like doing that to realize just how shocking, this central claim of Jesus being the resurrection and the life really is. Apart from Jesus, I don't know about you, but I'm not aware of anyone uh, in literature, let alone anybody in real human history, who has been able to stand in front of grieving relatives and say, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, unless Jesus is who he claims to be, those mourners at Mike's funeral should be utterly shocked and even furious and appalled at Jesus' words. What utter arrogance and self-conceit. Jesus would have to be a selfish, evil megalomaniac or a deranged madman to make this claim and then to to be crucified for it. Unless, unless he really is the resurrection and the life. So this claim is either life-changingly astonishing or it's empty arrogance. The PowerPoint has a nice quote from C.S. Lewis. I'm helping James a bit. He's very concerned. I might bring him in at the wrong space. But he said he's make sure it reflects Badly on me rather than on him. Chris, Thanks, James. Christianity, if false, says Lewis, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. I've been in Christian circles long enough to know that, and I'm probably guilty of this as, as much as the next person, that we can easily be quite glib in wanting to say the right things About death, perhaps even giving the impression that death holds no fear for the believer. I read a a commentary on Ecclesiastes a couple of years ago, and the author said rather unimaginatively, as far as I'm concerned, in his own preface, quote, I'm not afraid of dying, there's nothing about my own death or the state of being dead which distresses me. Now fortunately, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes has a far greater imagination and is far more realistic than that glib-sounding comment suggests. As are the psalmists and the Bible authors. They know the terrors of death. They know the ability of death to render our lives meaningless. A dear friend who visited John Stott during his last weeks uh, revealed that uh, John Stott was actually afraid of death in his final weeks. Oh, he was trusting the Lord Jesus, but he said, I've been a bad man. I know the state of my own heart. But it cast him upon the Lord Jesus. Many of the reformers who died at the stake, dying for these very central truths of Jesus being the resurrection and the life, their last words were, Lord, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. They were trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But there was nothing cocksure about their confidence in Jesus. I think an unhelpful glibness about death can prevent us from seeing just how shocking uh, these words are. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though they die, sorry, the one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I think if we're to feel the, the emotional and the rhetorical impact uh, of, of this claim, we, we've got to kind of take the story uh, on its own terms in real time. So we've got Mary and uh, her sister, sorry, Martha and her sister Mary. They're good friends of Jesus, as was Lazarus. And Jesus knows just how devastated. Jesus knows more than anyone how devastated the two sisters are going to be over losing their beloved brother. And Jesus loves them. He respects them, which is why Martha, verse 21 is able to make herself so vulnerable, effectively saying, Oh, Jesus, if you'd come when I first told you Lazarus was sick, he would not have died. It's as if she's saying, Well, I think, why why didn't you come when I first asked you? And it seems to be a mix of remorse and anger which is common in the face of death. And it's a natural part of grieving. We're seeing now, aren't we, shockingly, on our TV screens, how death snatches brothers from sisters, mothers from children, and children from their mothers. It's going to devastate in Ukraine whole communities. My sister Jane's 11-year-old son died at Easter 2008, and that's a long time ago. That's nearly 14 years ago, coming up this Easter. And yet the impact on my sister and brother-in-law is still profound to this very day. And if we're in church together at Easter, which sometimes happens, they come and stay I will find myself naturally looking across uh, at Jane, especially during the singing of certain hymns. Um, In Christ Alone was one we sang at at David's funeral and is also one, of course, we all sing at, at Easter. And I look across just to make sure she's okay. And 14 years on, I can see etched in Jane's face that exquisite blend of grief and hope that is drawn out by an Easter service, the victory of Jesus over death. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now we are meant to be shocked by the claim. And everyone in this story does have a bit of a strong reaction, don't they? So some are angry. All are astonished. Still others, after the, the resurrection of Lazarus, become murderous. And the claim in these circumstances touched the mourners at the deepest point possible. Death that breaks all of our hearts, or if it hasn't done, yet at some point it will. It takes those we love the most, those to whom we're knit by a thousand memories. We've shared meals and holidays and our innermost thoughts. And death can cast such a long shadow over the rest of life. It makes us question if anything now is worthwhile. I think the pandemic did that to a certain extent. I fear that what's going on in Ukraine, that it could obviously spill over and become much bigger, is going to do that. And at such times, we do tend to want to turn to our more thoughtful writers and poets who help us engage with kind of how we're feeling in here um, at an emotional level. And the the writers, the poets, they they tend to um, reflect well on the the sobering impact, the ability of death to impact us. And Leo Tolstoy is one such writer. I don't know whether you're familiar with his short stories. But he he wrote one short story that's particularly relevant at the moment, and it's called How Much Land Does a Man Need? That's, that's, that's That's the title of the short story, How Much Land... Does a man need? How much land do you need? How much land does Putin need? And the story is set in 19th century Russia, uh, where feudalism has been abolished and the serfs can now uh, buy and own and farm tracts of land themselves. And it's a, it's a rather relevant Russian story, I think you'd agree. So it all centers around Pakom. He's the master of a house, a poor house. And he's listening to his wife and her sister asking this question, how much land do we need in life? And they say, we shall never grow rich. But if we had land, we would always have enough to eat. And the quote from that story goes like this, and it's on the PowerPoint. It's perfectly true, thought (laughs) Pekombe sort of overhearing this conversation with his wife and his sister-in-law. Busy as we are from childhood, tilling Mother Earth, we peasants have no time to let any nonsense settle in our heads. Our only trouble is that we haven't land enough. If I had plenty of land, I shouldn't fear the devil himself. So Pahum goes to the, the Baskers. The Baskers, they're a, a people group who for some reason have acquired lots of the, the fertile steppe lands. And he says, I want to buy land from you. I hear you sell it cheap. They say, oh, yeah, we do. Our price is also the same. it's a 1,000 rubles a day. He says, what? what kind of price is that? 1,000 rubles a day? They say, yes. What, the, the way it works is this. You give us a 1,000 rubles, and you start from a high point, and you just survey all the land you feel you can encircle in a day. And however much land you can encircle and make marks with a spade, and get back to this point... All that land you've encircled for a thousand rubles is yours. But, if you don't make it back before the sun sets, you lose your thousand rubles, you lose the land, you have nothing. So Pokom, he thinks, well, that is really cheap. I'm gonna do this. So, his servant, uh, equips him with a spade and with all that he needs, uh, and he, and he surveys the land from the top of the, the hill. He has to wait for the sun to rise. The sun rises, <laughs> off he goes, like a shot. And he goes three miles in one direction and thinks, well, that's probably enough in that direction. Sees that the land is really, really fertile the other way. So he then goes quite a few miles the other way and then realizes, as the day is getting long, that he's ten miles from the start. And if he doesn't get back to the top of that hill, he has lost everything. He's lost his money, he's lost all the land he's claimed. And he's making these markings with his shovel. But he rises, he now has to jog. He now has to run to get back. And he throws off his boots, he throws off his cap, he, he, he throws even his flask away, only holding on to the shovel to make the last mark. And then he gets to the foot of the hill and he looks up and he sees the sun has gone down behind the people. And they're just jeering at him. He's failed. And he sinks to his knees, but then he looks up and realizes that The sun actually hasn't properly gone down because he can see that the people are lit up. They're backlit by the sun, so the sun is still up. They're not jeering at him, they're cheering him. They're saying, come on, come on. And so he runs up the hill. And with a massive effort, he gets to the top, pushes his spade into the ground, and then the sun sets. All that vast land is his. How much land does a man need? But he's got all that. But with the exertion of that last run up the hill, he has a massive heart attack and falls down dead at his servant's feet. And the servant takes Pekun's shovel and walks onto his newly claimed land and digs a plot six foot by two foot. How much land does Vladimir Putin need? Do you and I need? Six foot by two foot. Now that's a that's a... <laughs> That's a shocking story, isn't it? But Jesus asked the question, what should it profit you if you gain the whole world? I mean, that's massive. If you gain the whole world and lose your life, it profits you nothing. So Jesus knew that death renders all our plans, our accomplishments, our our acquisition of wealth, of status, whatever it is, it renders it all worthless. There are no pockets in a burial shroud. But Jesus also said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? You see, if we do believe this, if we believe this is true, it changes everything. The ministry of this church, the focus of all our lives, can never be the same. The the 3,000 Christians still living in Afghanistan... What should they do? Unless they believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life, they will surely convert us back to Islam, as the Taliban have offered them to do. Want to save your lives? Want to save the lives of your children? Convert back to Islam, and all will be well. Well, if this isn't true, they'll do that, surely. Do we believe this? I think it's probably important we don't imagine this was easy for Mary and Martha to believe, or for their contemporaries. They knew the finality of death, And the Bible's not shy about the absurdity um, that death brings to life, to all our dreams and hopes. The preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes laments the fact that we spend all our lives acquiring reputation, status, knowledge, wealth, and then we leave it to some idiot son or something like that. And he just says, empty, meaningless. The net residue is a big fat zero. We accomplish great projects in our work, uh, in our academic studies. But nobody's going to remember our books a hundred years after our death. Meaningless, meaningless. So what should it profit to Lazarus, who died, it seems, a wealthy man. He had his own uh, burial tomb. What should it profit to Lazarus, dying a very rich man, if Jesus is not the resurrection and the life? Paul says really clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, the most copied chapter in the whole of the New Testament, He basically says, if Christ is not raised, if the dead are not raised and Christ is not raised, then you're dead in your sins. Me and the other apostles, we're liars, so you might as well eat, drink, and be merry. It's just over. Go back to your homes. There's nothing here. It can't be of little importance. It's either of no importance or of total importance. Interesting, back home in the UK amongst university students, There's a bit of an image, isn't there, of students that they're sort of hedonists, live for pleasure. And up to about 15 years ago, that did seem to be the case. A lot of mindless pursuit of pleasure. But certainly for the last eight, nine years, students have been far more thoughtful, concerned about the climate, concerned about animal welfare and what what they eat, concerned about personal health, concerned about personal responsibility. Um, And they are no longer just living for pleasure, mindless living for pleasure. Now that's good, but it does leave them more mentally, more emotionally vulnerable because they do feel the weight of 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 society, of, of of these big things on their shoulders. And it's the hope of saving the planet, the hope of building a better, more just world, that is the thing that makes them particularly vulnerable. And there's a, a, a lovely. Uh, Stanza in The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot who talks about April being the cruelest month and that's going to come up on the the PowerPoint. In in, uh, the Northern Hemisphere, we've had a really long winter of six months and then April comes and you start to see life and he says this, April is the cruelest month breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. We dare, we dare believe that there's new life that death is over, that winter is giving way to spring and then to summer. And the author of Ecclesiastes puts it like this, and that's also coming up. There we are. Hey, James, you're ahead of the game. I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. So here's the burden. We find things beautiful in their time. Spring comes and there's hope. Beautiful flowers, the prospects of warmth and new life and romance and marriage and children and a new, a new dawn. We have all those hopes and aspirations, eternity in our hearts, but perhaps 70, 80 or so years if we're lucky set in our bodies. Time is the one thing we don't have. Mary and Martha, naturally they wanted to grow old with Lazarus. Have their own children share those long evenings eating outside, drinking wine, reminiscing about their their time together with Jesus. That's the burden, that's the great angst. Eternity in our hearts, 80 years in our bodies. I don't know whether you know the film Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner, director's cut. There's this this group of people who've been manufactured, uh, they're replicants, and this replicant, Roy, he's the one who shines the brightest so lives the shortest, which is of no comfort to him when he's told that. And he he's about to die. He realizes he's about to die. And he just reflects on all the beautiful things he's seen uh, in the galaxy. And he says these words. Um, time. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears In rain, time to die. And he bows his head and literally dies in that moment. Alfred Lord Tennyson, after the death of a a close friend, penned these words, Behold, we know not anything. I can but trust that good shall fall, at last far off, at last at all. So runs my dream, but what am I? An infant crying in the night, an infant crying for the light, and with no language but a cry, and I imagine that was the experience for, for Martha and Mary. They were crying for the lights for the light of, i mean it 's horrid when you 're grieving and it 's in the middle of the night and you can 't sleep, so you do long for for the light of day, but also you long for the light of perspective. What does this mean? What does this mean for my life? Can we ever be the same again and it 's into this united cry from Ecclesiastes. The apostle John and Tolstoy and Tennyson. It's into this, this universal chorus of lament that Jesus stands alone and unique in all history and says these words, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? It's utterly staggering. And of course, if the early Christians had not gathered around an empty tomb, this claim would be regarded as cold, as arrogant, and also the rantings of a madman. But the affirmation of 2,000 years of world history shows that the one who uttered those words really was the resurrection, really is the resurrection and the life. And now more millions follow him than anyone else who's ever lived or ever will lived. Jesus did defeat sin and death and hell. Jesus was raised to life. And if we believe he is the resurrection and the life, we will live again. So having cons- excuse me, having considered the enormity of the claim, let's now consider the compassion of the claim. Now, uh, Simon explained this so well last week, but I do still want to touch it, perhaps coming with some slightly different thoughts complimentary thoughts. Um, the obvious and important thing, just to, 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 to repeat, is that Jesus doesn't respond to the death of, death of Lazarus uh, with a serene detachment, does he? We know that Jesus loves Mary and Martha and loved their brother Lazarus. And everything in this passage seems to be motivated by love. Look back at verses 1 to 3. Verse 1, a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one. He poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love, the one you love is ill. And then verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, stayed where he was two more days. So what do we learn? When the sisters sent word to Jesus, they knew two things. One, that Jesus loved Lazarus and he loved them too. But second, they knew that Jesus could do something about their brother being ill. Um, Jesus had form when it came to this sort of thing. Jesus had ruined every funeral he turned up at, including his own. So when they're... Drawing his attention to this, they know he loves and they know he can do something about it. So when they send words in him, verse 3, the one you love is sick. They're not merely sending news. Oh, tra la Lazarus is, is sick. Um, that's quite interesting. It's an urgent cry for help. It meant, Lord, please come quickly. The one you love is dying. And this is why verses 5 and 6 are so shocking, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister so. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And Simon summarized this beautifully in his sermon heading, The Love That Led to Delay. And if it's not too irksome, let me just comment briefly on on this point. We aren't meant to be surprised, aren't we? Surely it should read, Now Jesus loved Mary and uh, her sister, uh, uh, sorry, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus so Jesus came quickly and restored Lazarus to them. That's, that would be a, a normal therefore, wouldn't it? Question, how can Jesus' delay possibly be a sign of God's love? Have you ever asked that question? I've asked that question in my life quite a few times. And all of us are going to cry out to, to the Lord as Martha and Mary did to Jesus. Lord, please hear me. The one I love is mentally ill. Lord, please don't delay. Oh, Lord, my marriage is so unhappy. My finances are in disarray. My children are so far from me. Lord, if ever you love me, please now hear my prayer. So the idea of delay is just such a difficult thing. How can delay be a sign of love? Well, in the verse before, Jesus tells us that the whole thing is for God's glory. Verse 4. When he heard this news, Jesus said, The illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory. So that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, so when he heard this, he delayed. This illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory. It's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. That is shocking. Jesus is asking us to trust him in this, that it's out of his love that God will, through our lives, allow certain courses of action that will bring most glory to him. As one author put it, we will be happiest when we are most satisfied in God, and we will be most satisfied in God when we see him glorified in our lives we will be happiest when we are most satisfied in God and we will be most satisfied in God when we see him glorified in our lives so jesus knew that for mary and martha to see god glorified through the raising of lazarus was the very best thing for them and for all those around them and it was because of love as simon said that he delayed it was because he loved them and others, that he allowed Lazarus to die. Now their grief, Martha's grief, Mary's grief, was was real. It may have only lasted four days, but they were in real time. And whether grief lasts four days, or or four years, or 40 years, it may only be a momentary uh, and, and present suffering. And there may well be, well, there is a weight of glory, but it's still real. And it still makes us feel like we're wasting away. And any delay in real time can seem unbearable. But Jesus says, I delay for God's grace and glory. Now I'm going to say something quite shocking myself now. I do believe this. I don't understand it, but I believe it. I'm confident that somehow in eternity, God, not that he needs to, but I do believe he will demonstrate to my sister and to her brother-in-law and to their daughter How David's death brought greater glory to God, even greater glory than healing would have done. Even greater glory than for David to live another 60 or 70 or so years. I have no idea how he will do that, but I know that Jesus doeth all things well. So in eternity, the Lord will be able tenderly to explain why he didn't answer your prayer for healing or why he delayed bringing deliverance from a terrible suffering. He sees the beginning from the end. He he sees the potential global and eternal impact of everything that happens to us. And what glorifies him most is ultimately the most loving thing for us. So on that last day, tenderly, gently, with great tenderness, he'll explain why you remaining single, when you so long to be married and have children, why that was the best thing or how your struggle with same-sex attraction has brought more glory to God than if you'd been straight. Nothing is left to chance and all can be used for God's greater glory. You see, if God could bring the greatest glory out of the the wicked betrayal, torture and murder of his only son, if God could have failed to answer that, that agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, Please take this cup of wrath away from me. Nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done. And how did God answer? With deafening silence. Surely if there was ever a prayer that should have been answered swiftly, it would have been that one. And yet, of course, God brings the greatest glory to humanity out of that, perhaps the greatest suffering. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And if we do believe this, it changes everything. So we not only see the enormity of the claim uh, and the compassion of the claim, but we're going on to now to see the, the power of the claim. But before we do, let's just just spend a little bit more time on Jesus' compassion. I know this is quite familiar. But notice in verse thirty three, Jesus was moved in spirit. He was moved in spirit and trouble. It's the, the Greek word which um uh is used outside of the Bible apparently to refer to a snorting horse in battle, this idea of Jesus being moved. And that's outside of uh uh New Testament Greek. And I suppose for for for, for, for Jesus in 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 seeing what death has done. He's snorting with fury at this intruder. All the devastation it's brought to, to Mary, to Martha, to his world, to those he loves. And of course he cares. He weeps, verse 35. Jesus wept, maybe the shortest verse in scripture, but it's like a pocket battleship, isn't it? Full of force and power. So lastly, let's consider the power of the claim, the power of the claim. So Jesus deliberately waits until Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. It's all very deliberate. But it's not immediately obvious why, why he'd do that. How would Jesus raising Lazarus after four days bring more glory to God and love for Mary and Martha than if he'd either stopped him dying or raised him earlier? Now, Simon mentioned last week the Jewish tradition of Ben Kafra in which, quote, grief reaches its height on the third day. And that's because in this tradition, uh, there is a Jewish belief that the spirit of the deceased person hovers above the body for three days, but no more. And ancient Jews believed that during that period of three days, there is a chance that a person's spirit may return to their body. And there was sort of some evidence for that in as much as even today in uh parts of the world where um, the determination of death is less precise, you do have somebody who's apparently dead uh, coming back to life, but it's often uh, because they haven't properly diagnosed them, uh, them as being dead in the first place. But beyond three days, bodily decomposition has begun, and it really is a lost cause, even, as far as Martha is concerned, it's a lost cause, even if somebody, well not somebody, even if Jesus turns up. Verse 21, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus, you've blown it. If only he'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And the Jews in verse 37, they knew it was a lost cause, like, like Martha. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? And at this stage, no one has any expectation of a miracle. Four days later, no expectation of a miracle at all. In fact, when Jesus suggests that the stone to the tomb should be removed, what does Martha say in verse 39? Are you sure you want to remove the stone for there will be a bad odour? Or as the King James wonderfully renders it, Lord, by this time he stinketh. Very practical comment from dear Martha. I mean, she doesn't want to add to, 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 to the, you know, to any, uh, any sense of, 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 of there being a, a loss of dignity here. So if it, from everyone's perspective, it's over. The spirit has left the body. The body is decaying and smelling in the Mediterranean heat. And Martha feels there's nothing to be gained. From opening the tomb. But it's into that hopelessness Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. But nobody believes he can do this. So look at verse 40. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with straps, strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus says to, said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I mean, can you imagine the impact? I mean, just imagine supper that evening. With Mary and Martha and Lazarus restored, the joy, the food, the wine. And Lazarus say, hey, what's this Martha here? He's talking about me stinking and telling Jesus not to even bother. What a wonderful restoration of family life, of, of love once again. But beyond that, because of course Lazarus would have died a few years later, however many, I don't know, 20, 30, and Mary, and Martha, of course they would have all died. But it's an enormous claim. It's a compassionate claim, but it's a powerful claim. It's a powerful claim because it's a a true claim. Jesus, who spoke the universe into being, can call the dead out of their graves, John 5 and apportion people their eternal destiny, but he requires us to believe in him. If we're to experience resurrection life ourselves, do we believe this? Now, Martha kind of believed in the resurrection on the last day. It was, a, it was something Orthodox Jews, uh, certainly uh, not Sadducees, but, the, but those who follow the Pharisees, they did actually believe this. And Jesus himself had repeatedly mentioned the resurrection of the dead in John's chapter 5 and 6. But what Jesus is claiming here, which is significantly different, is that Jesus alone, at the express will of the Father, will raise the dead on the last day. So Jesus wants to move Martha from an abstract belief in the resurrection of the dead on this far-off day. Yeah, 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 we're good Jews, we know that. He wants to move her from that to actually believe, I am the resurrection and the life, that Jesus is the very one who will raise the dead. Just as Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's actually saying, I'm not just the signpost, I'm not just the means of getting there, but I'm I'm the terminus, I am the destination. I am truth, life, resurrection. So it will be Jesus who on the last day comes and calls all men and women out of their graves and brings about the last judgment. Do we believe this? Do we believe this? Last PowerPoint, I think. Carson, in his excellent commentary, puts it like this. Just as Jesus not only gives the bread from heaven, but is himself the bread of life, so also he not only raises the dead on the last day, but is himself the resurrection and the life. There is neither resurrection nor eternal life outside of him. So very briefly, for the last few moments, what impact should this have on us? Well, first of all, for any who see this as merely a kind of church thing, an abstract religious thing, just something Christians say, do we now see that it is Jesus himself who's the resurrection and the life? This isn't just something we sing about. This isn't just some sort of doctrine, something doctrinaire that's theoretically... So we must follow Jesus. It's not a matter of just going through the motions of, of, of doing churchianity, of coming to church and singing the songs, unless our faith is in him, unless we actually believe that Jesus will call us out of our grave on that last day. And just as he ruined every funeral he went to, just as he ruined the fu- his own funeral, just as he ruined Lazarus's funeral, he will ultimately ruin your funeral by calling you out of your grave to eternal life. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? To believe that means to commit to a personal belief in Jesus as the resurrection and the life. The the one who by his death and resurrection provided the only means by which we could be given that call to resurrection life. And the great thing is that the call to you now, if you're not yet a follower, is a powerful one. It's so powerful it can be heard and obeyed. So if Jesus is calling to your heart right now, saying, believe in me, that's a powerful call. You can respond to it. Second, uh, for those who are followers of Jesus already, question here, why are our postures so often cowed in the modern culture wars? If this is really true, we're, we're fed up, aren't we, of sort of, I don't know, not being woke enough, um, of being seen to be transphobic or homophobic or anything else. But it's only the Christian who can introduce people, whatever their race, gender or sexuality, to the one who is resurrection and life. It's only the Christian who has a basis for the inherent dignity of all human beings and for the fact that we are more than just functioning bodies for 70 or 80 years. So don't be cowed. Lift your heads with this message. And as for not being woke, Christians should be the most awake people on the planet and one day will be woken uh, for all eternity due to Jesus being the resurrection and the life. And it's also worth saying that Jesus' vision for the new humanity is very humanizing. We are going to be given physical resurrection bodies like Jesus for all eternity. The human race is forever. So to relegate our identity and significance to the intersection of race, gender, sexuality is missing the bigger picture of what it means to be made in God's image. So what would this really mean if we believed this today? How would Jesus being the resurrection and the life impact us? How would it impact the current craze for safety being the highest virtue? It's just driven me to distraction in the UK. How safety has been worshipped. As if we live for safety, do we? In the, in the first world war, in the second world war, men and women gave up their lives to guarantee our freedom. We have voluntarily laid down our freedoms to gain a bit more life, to gain a bit more safety. Well, I'm not saying it's not unimportant to be safe from catching a virus, safe from hateful or harmful speech, safe from being triggered by new and upsetting ideas and views. But we don't live to be safe. Jesus calls us to adventure, to live and speak for him, to take risks for him, risks with our time, risks with our money, risks with our reputations. I am the resurrection and the life. Do we believe this? Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this absolutely astonishing claim. And we thank you that by the evidence of Jesus' resurrection, that we know this was not just a shocking claim, but it was a true one. It is a clue one. Lord, give us the good sense to take you at your word, to believe in your Son, Jesus, as a resurrection and a life, and to take to ourselves the promises that though we die, we will live. Help us to live in the light of that today and this week. May we know his resurrection power in us. May we live this great adventure of faith with a greater confidence, with a greater joy. And for any here who have not personally come to, to bow the knee at Jesus as a resurrection and the life, by your Holy Spirit, call them powerfully. Give them the ability to respond to that call because we ask it for Jesus' greater glory and in his name. Amen.